0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Uncovering and telling the stories of LGBTQ people in history can be rewarding important work, but it's also often challenging and complex. How far is it possible to understand the sexualities of people in the past from our 21st century vantage point? And which stories do we forget about? To mark LGBT History Month in the UK, Matt Elton has assembled a panel of experts to discuss issues of representation in the past. He began by asking the panel to introduce themselves.
4: Hi, so my name's Florence Scott and I'm the author of the popular Substack newsletter and podcast Alf Who, which provides biographies of women who lived in early medieval England. And I'm also in the process of completing my PhD at the University of Leeds on gender and queenship in early English coronations.
2: My name is Tim Wingard. I'm a lecturer in late medieval history at the University of York, and my work focuses on nature, gender and sexuality in sort of medieval England and Northwestern Europe.
5: So um, I'm Channing Joseph. I'm a journalist and uh, queer creative historian. My work focuses on sexuality and gender identity in the American slavery era from, from that period to the early 20th century.
6: Hello, my name is Anthony Delaney and I am a historian of gender and sexuality in 18th century England mainly, where I look at same-sex households and terminology across the 18th century.
7: Hi, I'm Flam McInnes. I'm a third year history PhD student at the University of Oxford looking into trans feminine experiences of the women's liberation movement in Britain in the 1970s and 1980s. And I'm also criminally active on TikTok and make trans history videos.
8: Thank you, everyone, so much. I wanted to kick off by asking what you thought the challenges were in charting the stories and experiences of LGBTQ people, particularly in the periods that you focus on, I suppose. Florence, would you like to maybe kick off?
4: Yeah, sure. So I work on the early medieval period focusing on England. And I think that the biggest issue that I would have with charting the stories and experiences of LGBTQ people during this period is basically a lack of evidence. So there are a few, few, very few surviving written sources compared to other periods of history. And these tend to be religious documents as the church was very wealthy. It was the biggest producer of written material at this time. So most of the documents pertain to the elites in society and have a religious focus. And so the individual lives of people, their experiences of gender and sexuality are only very rarely captured um, in the written source record. And I think that a huge pitfall with studying LGBTQ people in this period, is that a lack of source material can lead people to assume that everybody had a cisgender or heteronormative experience. So because there are no sources ex- describing people's sexualities, that that they've therefore they all must have been exactly what we would have expected them to be, because there's no evidence either way.
8: Tim, how does that compare to your experience? So really, for the, the later Middle Ages, so kind of
2: from around 1200 to 1500, it's it's really very much a lot of the same issues that Florence is running into. So that kind of the lack of source material is a huge problem for us. There's There's a little bit more in that later period. But the big issue is that there's really not that much evidence that can give us insights into people's own experiences of their sexuality. So for my period, we don't really have much in the way of diaries, memoirs, or kind of more intimate personal letters in the way that maybe some of my colleagues working on later history, they can draw on that to think about you know LGBT people's own experiences. So the kind of things we, that we would have to use are often these kind of legal records. So for all these different kind of courts in particularly England, and that's kind of where you see um, LGBT people basically interacting with the law So there's a couple of really famous examples in England, such as the Eleanor Rickner trial in 1395, this kind of quote-unquote cross-dressing sex worker who's brought before one of the London courts. But the limitation of this material is that it's still very much, you know, it's, it's very much it's written about these LGBTQ individuals by other people, tends to take a very hostile stance on them. So we have to work quite creatively with that material if we want to actually understand
8: the person's own experience of themselves and their identities from that. Channing, are these the kind of problems that you run into at all?
5: It's exactly the same set of problems, except I think my approach may be different because I, my my goal is usually, my background is as journalist, but I, I take a sort of creative nonfiction approach often. And my goal is to... As Tim said, you you have to be creative with with the records to be able to understand what people are going through, and I think that is, for me, the key to it. The records that I usually start with are journalistic records, news reports, either describing arrests or describing news coverage of early drag balls or other sort of glimpses into early queer culture uh, in America. And through those you know it's an investigate it's sort of a using investigative journalism skills which are very similar to historical skills where i i learn as much as i can about the people described in those news reports and through that i can learn about the the world that they lived in the lives that they led the communities that they may have been a part of, and describing all of those things, you get a clearer picture of what their lives were like. Whether or not you get them saying "I identified as blank" or "this is my specific experience," because I think oftentimes, even if even if you had those letters or diaries, you wouldn't have people just you know saying saying "I identify as" and then filling in the blank, because people's focus at the at, you know in earlier times was not on identity. And an emotion and sexuality that sort of became apparent to me when I, I realized, you know, when I when I began working on my own research, and I would, for example, in the in the early African American context, some people involved in early drag balls call themselves queens, right? That's where the word drag queen actually comes from. But you very rarely get people describing themselves sort of. You know, they didn't use the word gay, but even even using terms like sissy or pansy, which referred to people, men who weren't matcha, you didn't get people self-identifying as those terms. And you, you, I, I began to realize, oh, people focus more on not so much how they felt, but what people were doing, how they were how they were sort of enacting their identities in the world. So I think that says a lot about you know, gives us a glimpse into, gives us insight into those time periods, because oftentimes we come from a contemporary, modern perspective and say, how did these people identify? Were they gay? Were they trans? Were they non-binary? And the answer to that is, there is no answer. It's like saying, um, what was New York like 500 years ago? There was an island, but there was no... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was no New York City 500 years ago. It's similar. It's Modern identities d- didn't exist, but people did behave in similar ways that we can identify with. And I think that oftentimes the, that can give us insight that they were what I call queer ancestors. They were They were the precursors to the identities that we now we now sort of how we see, th- see the world through these identities that we use today.
8: Anthony, does this difference between sort of being and doing exist in the period that you focus on?
6: Yes, yes, it does I think I'm lucky generally in in a Georgian or 18th century context in that there's actually quite a lot of discussion happening around gender and sexuality so there are quite a few sources that we can dig into and a lot of the discussions that are happening in the 18th century echo a lot of the discussions that, that we're having now. The blocks I think sometimes are, are echoing what other people have said in terms of use of terminology and I'm sure we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later but one of the one of the things I think I find most, inconvenient, shall we say, is the burden of proof to discuss and analyse queer histories is far higher than it is to um, analyse and research other histories. Um, So for instance, you must, not quite sure why, but one must go to great lengths to kind of justify and qualify and quantify the individuals or the relationships or whatever it is that you're looking at in terms of queer history. And that burden of proof is just not there for what we refer to as normative histories. I don't really like using that term. It, it feels a little reductive, but the burden of proof to allow one to speak in an, it, mostly in an academic setting of, of queer histories, but I'm noticing that's going into kind of popular media now too, is far, far higher. We just assume a normative positioning. And and therefore, if we deviate from that, the kind of responsibility on us as queer historians or queer, you know, storytellers or, or queer researchers is far higher. Thank you. And Fleur, how about you?
7: Not to throw a spanner in the works, but I think, especially because obviously I look at the 70s and 80s, a lot of the people that I'm looking at are still alive. And so that's like obviously its whole sort of historical issue in itself, especially when exploring transness is trying to make sure that you're not sort of crossing any boundaries between either like putting sort of certain narratives or stories onto people who very well might not agree with the way that you're writing their history but also kind of not wanting to necessarily put people in danger not wanting to out people not wanting to kind of put anything at risk that's still being spoken about because even though these things were like 40 50 years ago like obviously those are still people's lives and still can be affecting them to this day and so I think in that sense there has to be sort of quite a lot of carefulness around there. But also in general, kind of as everyone has said, like with queer historians, like it is just the constant thing of having to explain why you quote, think someone is queer. But then if you're writing a history that wasn't about queerness, you wouldn't need the same kind of context in order to prove that someone's straight. You could just like get on with it and talk about it. And so that's something that I experience quite a lot with the kind of people that I'm and the period that I'm studying as well. Just some really interesting stuff there. And we
8: touched on a fair few labels and the idea of labelling. So I wanted to talk about the sort of challenges of using labels and how relevant you think it is to apply these labels to people who lived in various periods through the past. Perhaps we can talk through some of those issues.
4: I think that one of the main things that we need to remember about history is that it's an interpretive craft. I think that we can't really define people in the past. We can only interpret them. Um, I think labels are, are very helpful tools in doing that, but they're not necessarily definitive. I think that gender is gender and sexuality are things that are constructed and they evolve over time. And I think that that means that any role that we ascribe to a historical figure using our own terms is always going to be anachronistic, whether that be you know, transgender, queer, or whether that be man or woman. It's always going to be affected by our modern conceptions of gender and sexuality. I think even so, that this shouldn't stop anybody from being able to see themselves reflected in history and in historical figures, as long as we're being honest about the fact that we are always going to be burdened by this anachronistic interpretation. I think that we only ever have anachronisms to understand the past. Maybe that's not the case for, you know, when you research people who are still alive. But in my period, this is, this is you know, a long period of time ago. And there are so many things about that, you know, how people understood themselves in that time that I'm just never going to be able to tap into, especially with the lack of of, you know, written sources that are from people's direct experiences. So I think that that, that's just one of the challenges of writing history. And I think that any lens that we look at history through, whether that be a feminist lens or a Marxist lens, or just the lens of our own experiences and our own knowledge, that it's always going to be anachronistic, And I think that it it also comes down to that, this idea we've touched upon again and again already of of the burden of proof that if you use particular labels for people in the past, that you therefore have to justify them and justify them because they're seen as particularly anachronistic. Whereas we're not, I think people often don't challenge enough the way that a lot of labels that are used in the past are also, you know, not going to translate perfectly onto a historical context.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
3: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp slash history extra
5: My experience with these labels has been, as a journalist, I have to sum up what, I, what I'm what i writing about for a popular audience. Particularly, you know, the headline tends to be a difficult thing because you, you have to say what you're talking about in a very short, direct way that, that a popular audience will understand, not an academic audience. So terms like LGBTQ+, plus and queer have become terms that people understand despite the fact that they may not be ideal terms to use in discussions of of how people lived and thought of themselves long ago. And I personally think to the extent that we can discussing how people thought of themselves and how they described themselves and what terminology they use in the period and, and location that they lived... Is really a crucial part of part of the history work that we do. So if people are, are in a in a time and place where they're using terms like queen and pansy, we should use those terms because they use those terms um, to the extent that we can. After we hit them with the headline, we then explain, "Oh, actually, this is how how they identified or how they thought of themselves or how they spoke about their community." I think it's still true that most of us as queer people have the experience of discovering ourselves and realizing, oh, I'm not like other people. What is this? (laughs) And we learn, you know, given the, the tools that we have and the time that we live in, we say, ah, I am gay or I'm queer or I'm trans and... We have terminology that we reach for that we apply to ourselves, and how we it reveals how we understand ourselves, and even the terms that we have now don't apply perfectly, right? But I think um, it says a lot if we if we go back in time and we are reading records as you know, a particular person I was researching uh, earlier or, or last year actually um, identified as an androgyne. There, there is no exact. Uh, term that fits that idea. It's just this idea that, you know, this person was born, assigned male at birth, but felt that they had many female characteristics, described themselves as having both male and female characteristics. And through the course of several memoirs, it's clear that there's not quite a specific way, a specific modern equivalent that 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 you could easily slap on without some some question. So wouldn't it be more interesting and more revealing and more true to just use the androgyne to describe that person and, and say this is the, the word that the person used to describe themselves. And then we add another term because we have so many why why not add another um to understand that time period. In this case I'm talking about Late 19th, early 20th century. So um, America.
8: Tim, have you encountered these problems of mapping terms onto the past? Definitely. It's it's a huge ongoing kind of issue
2: within sort of my field. I think where I come at it is maybe from a very pragmatic question around kind of the nature of the work we do as historians and the tools we have available to do that. So again, this is this is something that is endlessly argued about, but I would kind of say that our kind of gender and sexual identities, those are very much on one level shaped by the cultures we live in and the time periods we live in. So, you know, a, a person's experience of being, you know, a, a gay man in 21st century England is going to be completely different from that of uh, a man who has sex with men in Paris in the 13th century. But there is the kind of underlying that there's a core of human experience, you know, the desire of men for men, women for women, all that, you know, that feeling of having a gender identity that is incongruous in some way with the one you were assigned or or wanting to sort of change gender roles. That's something that historians have shown again and again that that's something that appears in so many different cultures and so many different eras to the point where you could really say it's it's a fundamentally a trans-historical phenomenon. It's something that just exists within all human cultures. What changes is specifically how those identities and desires are actually expressed. So what I kind of feel then is that in order to study that kind of history in a meaningful way, you need to have A kind of stable group of, you know, categories and concepts to be able to think about that in a comparative way. And so, you know, talking about queerness in the Middle Ages or LGBTQ identity in the Middle Ages is anachronistic. No one in the 12th century thinks of themselves as gay, homosexual, bisexual, transgender. For the most part, they don't really have a huge stable of terms for themselves anyway. But to meaningfully analyse their experiences and lives, we kind of need to draw on those sort of modern concepts. And that's really coming back, I think, to what we've been talking about a lot, you know, today, and particularly what Anthony was saying around the double standard in research, where, you know, for medievalists, there's all kinds of concepts that we will use as historians, almost very kind of unreflexively sometimes, that are also completely anachronistic. The way we might talk about you know, the nation states of the Middle Ages that equally are just as hard to map onto the Middle Ages. But we use them because we acknowledge that to a certain extent, we have to use these concepts in order to do any meaningful work. And I always come back to this kind of amazing essay that um, this historian Judith Bennett wrote a couple of decades back now. You know, she's looking at women's lives in late medieval Europe. And she's arguing that we can look at all these women's lives and we can see how so many elements of their lives map onto the sort of the modern lesbian experience, whether that's having sex with other women, living in very kind of close emotional intimacy, or having certain forms of social relations that are outside of the norms of their societies. And so even if we can't just easily say, well, they're, they're obviously lesbians, we can think of them usefully as historians, or in sort of historical terms, as being lesbian-like. And that's just something that I really think works much more broadly outside of that specific set of dynamics to thinking about sexuality
8: and gender more broadly in the Middle Ages. Thank you. Anthony, what sort of terms were being used in the 18th century? And do we encounter some of these issues here as well?
6: In terms of terminology from the 18th century, like other people have said, it's a lot of the terminology that's applied is being applied to other people rather than adapted and used as a self-identity marker. That's not to say there wasn't, particularly in the later 18th century, a sense of a shared identity amongst people who we would now term as queer or gender non-conforming. But certainly there were labels that were applied. Some of the, some examples of those are, I guess, one of the mo- most famous and one of the most well known is "molly," which was a term for men who had sex with other men. And people tried to maybe map that on top of what we would refer to as gay. But during the course of my PhD, I had uh, I, I came across a, another term called "cock queen," which was also men who had sex with other men, but who had sex. Or who who had intimacies, shall we say, in the domestic sphere as opposed to in the more public sphere, where where the mollies would would meet. Masculine women were interpreted as robins. The, the, often there's uh, references to some queer men or effeminate men as finger twizzlers, as sodomites. Obviously, so there's there, there's kind of a there's a large array of different terminology that's going around in the 18th century. But I think one of the key things for me in navigating how to tackle this was. Shirking off the kind of arrogance of our own modern t- terminology, we there, there tends to be this um, this idea that we've cracked it, that we have the right terms and that we're using the definitive, long lasting, these will be in place forever words to describe all of these experiences, but actually we're just part of a much longer conversation and a conversation that will continue. and And in our own time, right now, that terminology is shifting here and now. You can see it happening, you know, both in in public conversation and in uh, the academy. So in that sense, we need to stop thinking about the current terminology as definitional, I think. As I say, it's part of a a legacy of terminology and it will change. It's morphing right now and it will will continue to change. Um, Say, for example, when I came out first, I would have absolutely used the term gay. I use that less and less now. I use queer more and more. And that's in my own lifetime. That's in my own experience. So that's changing for me as a person. I know that's changing for other people too. But in terms of archival discussion, that's just going to continue to change. So it's really important not to tongue tie ourselves, I think, when we talk about terminology. And just as kind of a final point on this, you often see when we're writing about queer the queer past or whatever else, and and this links back to what we we're talking about before. You know, if you if you start using the term queer, you have to say whose definition of queer you're you're using, why you're using it, what what is what are the parameters of all this. But if you want to throw in a heteronormative, you can go ahead and do that, and that's not you know that's anachronistic to my period certainly, but. That terminology doesn't cause as much fuss, and it's not as debated, and it's kind of assumed that well, everybody knows what you mean when you say heteronormative, and I kind of go, well, I don't. What do you mean? So it's I think it's really important not to tongue tie ourselves. The labels are important, and as Channing was saying, I think that's key. Use the labels. Always use those labels that they were using within those particular time periods. But these are important histories to continue to tell, and let's not let something as as kind of fleeting as terminology, our our terminology, limit what we are willing or able to be able to communicate.
8: Thank you. Fleur, have some of these more recent shifts in terminology impacted on your research?
7: Yeah, I mean, I have it even just in terms of the reading that I'm doing between the period that I'm studying and the present day, if I'm reading a historian's account of trans experiences, and they wrote it In the year 2000, chances are they're using terms that we don't really use anymore in the present day. Similarly, even just as non-binary person, the research that I'm doing and when I read trans experiences that are being accounted in the 70s and 80s, they're totally different from my understanding of my gender identity and stuff like that because the historical contexts are totally different. And so I think, obviously, like such a big part of, and I think what we've been talking about is like. The terminology isn't there to kind of have this fixed, definitive idea of what these things are. It's just there to communicate ideas and stories and sort of in any way that we use language. You know, like when we're doing history writing and we're talking about history, we're always using modern terms to talk about things from the past that we might not necessarily have used when those things were happening. And I think I have it a lot with younger people, especially when I'm talking about my research, often like people that I'm looking at, will use terminologies for themselves like cross-dressers or transvestites and especially younger people kind of understand this as terms that they shouldn't be using anymore and so you know say oh it's problematic to use that or like you know you shouldn't do this and I think that's like another part of why it's really important to talk about terminology because it's important to understand when I look at these different things there are people who identified as Cross dressers who have very similar gender identities to people who identified as transvestites, and then other transvestites who have totally different understandings of their gender identity to people who use the same terminologies for them. So, in terms of, you know, like personally, I sort of use trans or trans feminine, and then we'll obviously explain what I mean by that. But I agree that I think kind of often we do get very caught up in the words. And the whole thing is that it's never really been about the words. It's about like the people and the stories behind them. That's sort of the whole point of it is what we're trying to learn from it rather than getting caught up in the very specific words that we're using.
8: Staying with you, Flo, on that, I wanted to move on to talk about the identities, which are some of those things you were just talking about. Do you think there are people whose stories don't get told or that there are certain groups of people who get to do the telling of these stories?
7: Yeah so I think yes to both. Something that I'm really trying to sort of come to terms with and sort of figure out how to deal with with my research is there is so little in terms of trans history from sort of after the 1950s that focuses on trans people who didn't medically transition in some sort of way and I think that's because our modern understanding of trans people is often sort of very much defined by medical transition and things like that and so I also think that's why it's quite difficult to then sort of find accounts of non-binary people because obviously if our understanding of transness is defined by medical transitions and this idea of going from one very fixed gender identity to another obviously there's not going to be very much space for someone whose gender identity kind of doesn't necessarily fit within those parameters and then in the same breath with who's telling those stories again it's comes to our understanding of what those gender identities are and things like that obviously as a young white non-binary person in their 20s who has only ever lived in Britain like I'm going to have a very specific understanding of transness and queerness that as much as I might try I'm never going to have a full range of understanding in comparison to someone else and so I think that's why it's also really important to kind of be aware of who is talking about LGBTQ plus history. Like something that I find so often in UK trans history is that there are barely any black women historians. And so if we want to think about the histories of black trans women in like the field that I'm looking at, those stories are even harder to find than people that I'm looking for in general, because those communities are even more marginalized. And you have the whole intersections of issues with race and gender and class and There are going to be people who are able to research that better than I am because they're part of those communities. And I think that's the whole conversation that, you know, often we'll like kind of see these conversations about who should and shouldn't research certain things. And I think they're important conversations to have. I think sometimes people get really defensive about them and think that it means that we're trying to suggest that you have to be like a certain kind of person to do specific research. But I think rather it's about trying to understand to the best that you can where yourself, thinking about yourself as this researcher and thinking about where you are going to have shortcomings and if it is possible to overcome them or if other people need to be doing the work as well, because sometimes it is just the case that you are not the person to do it.
8: Thank you so much. Anthony, does that uh, echo with any of your own experiences of your research?
6: Yeah, I think particularly in terms of class and race. It's something that's really missing in 18th century queer uh, histories. The only one that I can think of is actually in in America in the early 19th century with an individual called Mary Price. But in England, it's or Britain more generally, it's really tough to kind of unravel those queer histories that include people of color. In terms of class, it's a little easier because we have some court documentation that includes working class or middle class people. Uh, One of the things which I'm kind of particularly on the class side is that I'm trying to incorporate a little bit more into my research is just to get a bit craftier in how you're approaching source material. So, for instance houses and homes for me form a big part of my primary uh, research and my primary documentation and the way those houses and are are where they're situated what they're surrounded by like for instance one of the really big things that was overlooked in the raids on Margaret Clapp's Molly House in the 1730s which which is you know it's a really well-known history well relatively well known history is the fact that that was a lodging house too so a lot of the men who frequented Margaret Clapps lived there that was their home they had this kind of shared lodging experience they were working class men so there's this kind of idea of community within those lodging houses for queer people that are not elite with with elite histories it's it's so much easier because there's just significantly more documentation in an 18th century context but that's up to us to get craftier and also not to dismiss a kind of a, let's say, not to dismiss our, our kind of queer dar when it comes to source material. I think it's valuable. I think we bring ourselves to all our work anyway. So why would we deny that element of ourselves when it comes to something that is somewhat intangible, but you just know there's something there for you to kind of dig a little deeper, dig a little deeper, see where you can go, see what you can unravel. Yeah, it's an issue. And I think it's good that people are addressing it now. And it's it's long overdue. And it's it's exciting to think about what might emerge from, from that kind of craftier archival interpretation.
8: Mm, thank you. Channing, do you think there are people or groups of people whose stories aren't told as often as they should be?
5: Yes, that is obviously true. And it's my goal to tell some of those. I think... For all the reasons, I mean, I think the philosophical and you know historiographical issues that come up when you even sort of begin to approach these topics, it, it is can be daunting for people to to even begin to tell those stories. And then again, yeah, if if you say I'm not the right person to tell the story, sometimes that can mean. No one else is interested or nobody else has time or nobody else has noticed that the story needs to be told. So that can happen also. I tend to say if you have an interest in telling a story, put it out there. And then if there are other people who feel that they are better qualified than you, they can take it up from you. And at least then the story is out there. But sometimes that needs to happen before anybody else gets interested. I think particularly I grew up in a time and place where uh, there was no discussion of the experiences of people who were attracted to members of their own sex in the discussions of history, discussions of, of the past in school or in the media or elsewhere. And that gave me a sense that there were no people like me in the past which is a kind of, you know, distortion by omission. And for me personally to discover that there were people who had same-sex romances and, and relationships. Growing up, there was, a, you know, in school I did not learn about people who experienced same-sex attraction, um, people who experienced non-standard gender identities. I didn't learn about that in school. I didn't learn about that in historical context. I, I only learned about it sort of in... um a schoolyard type of way, or in terms of people like, you know, family members or other people making fun because you didn't fit into a certain certain categories that were considered normal. The idea that people who experienced same-sex attraction or non-standard gender identities uh, existed in the distant past and were part of culture and influenced culture would have been a concept totally foreign to to my education growing up, and I think it causes a sense of a, a distortion by omission by not telling those stories. There are many queer folks, we would describe, describe them as queer today, queer, queer-adjacent, queer, people who participated in what was then called cross-dressing, people who participated in same-sex relationships in the past, whose actions, whose lives were influential, whose, whose participation in those events was influential to, but then such as drag balls and so on, who were uh, influential to American history and to cultural movements and cultural traditions that, that still exist today. And by not including discussions of those people, we get a misrepresentation of what actually happened and what was important to, to creating the world that we live in.
8: Tim, does that reflect the things you've encountered in your research? Definitely. I mean, on this on this issue of who gets to tell
2: stories of queerness in the Middle Ages, really building on what both Fleur and Channing have said, particularly around transness in the Middle Ages, there is a huge problem with just how underrepresented trans people are in the discipline of history. So one of the last sort of stats I read for this, um, which I think was from a year or two back, it's estimated that there's only one out trans or non-binary person in a permanent position in medieval history in any university anywhere on the planet. Um, And obviously, you know, as we can see, there's more people at other levels of the profession at PhD level, at kind of early career stages, but still there's huge barriers towards trans people accessing the academy. Half of it is a problem of attitudes. So, within the field you know and this is again something that I think anyone who works on queer history of any flavour has probably encountered but you, you do run across just this attitude sometimes of this is not worthy history to research this is not worth studying sometimes you may encounter attitudes that are more kind of well-intentioned the idea of you know oh you shouldn't be studying trans history because there's no market for it you need to take do something more serious in order to get ahead. Sometimes it's coming from a much more hostile place. So there's this kind of pushback against trans people, you know, conducting work. But then another side to it, and perhaps even more important, is just on the kind of, you know, material condition side of things. The trans community is disproportionately more likely to be alienated from family, so lacking family support or kind of substantial income or finances themselves, which makes getting through that kind of the career progression from undergraduate through master's and postgraduate study infinitely more difficult. And that's obviously something that's not exclusive to the trans community. That's something that is just as seriously impacting on Black people, disabled people, working class people from becoming researchers and entering the research community And to really echo what Fleur said, it doesn't have to be the case that everyone who works on every historical topic has to have that kind of personal identification with their material, you know. But it's it's a situation where, particularly for medieval studies, a very large amount, if not most of the work being produced about medieval trans people is often by cisgender people. And I think, you know, it's important that communities are able to take ownership of their own histories and to play arguably the most important
8: part in telling their own stories like that. Thank you so much and Florence finally to you. How does this reflect your own your own experiences?
4: Yeah, I think there's not only a question of which stories get told, but also who is allowed to tell certain stories. So I think that my research is a little bit different in that I kind of look at political, very establishment kind of sources and find queer themes in them. And I think that there's there's an issue there where there's an expectation that if you're doing serious political history, that you're not going to be doing a queer interpretation. And so I get the sometimes you know the feeling that when I'm looking at these sources and, and I work in, in a field where some of the foundational work has been done by people who were in the Nazi party for example so that's the kind of this political medieval history is the kind of history that has attracted very extreme conservative views and I look at these sources and wonder if I'm the first person who's ever interpreted these in a queer way and if I'm the first person who's ever looked at them in that way and you know I think that there's often an expectation that if you want to do queer history, it must be social history. So you get, you know, a lot of the political history is not ever examined in that way. So I'm thinking about people in in very much the upper echelons of society and ways that obviously those ideas would have filtered down, I think. And I also think that the idea of who gets to be represented in history is a battleground that marginalized people kind of fight with each other over a lot of the time. I think that gains in the recognition of certain kind of sexualities or gender identities can sometimes unfairly overshadow other less accepted interpretations of history. So somebody might claim that a historical figure is uh, trans or gender non-conforming, and that might be interpreted by other people as maybe erasing women or erasing lesbians or erasing, you know, these other identities that they feel, you know, really represent them. And I think that sometimes historical figures tend to be read as homosexual, specifically when maybe bisexual or queer might be more accurate. So I think a lot of the time, these these stories can often make marginalised people fight over whose narratives are allowed to kind of exist. And that's a real problem, because there should be room for everybody's narratives and everybody's interpretations to exist in history.
0: Today's panellists were Florence Scott, Fleur McInnes, Tim Wingard, Channing Joseph and Anthony Delaney. You can read plenty more on LGBTQ plus history on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.